Hello and welcome to Talking Opinions. I am your host, Anthony Livingston Hall. The tech, legal and political worlds are still all at Twitter over the way Apple CEO Tim Cook was grilled during cross-examination at an epic antitrust trial last week. No doubt this reaction was partly due to the unusual fact that the presiding judge, not opposing counsel, was the one who grilled him. As Fortune reported on May 21, U.S. District Judge Yvonne Gonzalez Rogers needled Cook on why the iPhone maker won't give users the option to buy lesser-priced virtual goods and content directly from developers. This because Apple allows them to buy only through its App Store. To be fair, though, Cook parried with that unflappable Elan, which he's so famous for. The thrust of his argument was that Apple is operating this way to protect its intellectual property, and that users are free to choose crappy Android phones if they want cheaper options. Ouch! <laughs> except that Cook did not have a legal leg to stand on. Nor did the judge leave him flayed like a dead fish, however, which is the impression every single report gave. In fact, most portrayed him like the idiomatic five-year-old, trying to deny he stole the cookies, you know, despite being caught with his hand in the cookie jar and having crumbs all over his face. Frankly, only wishful schadenfreude explains this disconnect, because, evidently, Cook's notorious sanctimony has been so upsetting that everyone, from spurned reporters to exasperated politicians and jealous CEOs, saw in his cross-examination more of what they wanted to see than what actually transpired. Mind you, many were probably channeling the joy everyone shared at Microsoft CEO Bill Gates' expense when he did in fact squirm like a five-year-old under similar circumstances. The occasion was an antitrust case in 1998 featuring Microsoft in the role Apple is playing today as tech hegemon. But after finally condescending to sit for a deposition, Gates shocked everyone when he began withering under cross-examination almost immediately. In fact, his infantile responses to probing questions government lawyer David Boyce posed became so farcical that even the presiding judge could not help laughing out loud. For example, Gates asked Boyce for the meaning of words like concern compete, and even we. So many times, he made Bill Clinton's famous request for the meaning of the word is look sincere and profound. But I digress. The point is that this antitrust trial 
is just a sideshow for Apple. Of course, Microsoft lost its case, with the judge ruling that it was every bit the market monopoly back then that Apple so clearly is today. Yet, Microsoft is bigger and more profitable today than ever. Not to mention that the government's victory against Microsoft spawned the very tech monsters it's now trying to control, most notably Amazon and Google. So that proverb about better the devil you know than the one or ones you don't probably obtains. That said, there is no denying the reputational and financial damage this trial is costing Apple. But Cook knows those costs pale in comparison to the opportunity benefit Apple is deriving from having this sideshow in California deflect from the main show going on in China these days. Sure enough, that show features Microsoft and its demon spawn, as well as rival Apple and every other big tech company. But leave it to a tabloid headline to expose the immorality involved in doing business there. Because here's how the Daily Mail blared what Apple is doing on its main page on May 18. And I quote, How Tim Cook agreed to hand over the data of all Chinese Apple users to the communist government and allow its servers to be run by state officials in return for being able to do business with Beijing. End quote. The report itself details how Apple is blithely taking orders from Chinese authorities. Chief among those orders is configuring iPhones to better enable state censorship of foreign news, especially on topics like human rights, and to better facilitate state spying on Chinese citizens, especially those who might be involved in pro-democracy protests. Of course, this stands in glaring contrast to the way Apple defiantly denied similar requests from American authorities. Chief among those requests was allowing it to access iPhones to better investigate crimes, especially related to terrorism, and to better prevent online abuse, especially related to children. But this is nothing new, because I've been damning Apple's mercenary hypocrisy in this respect for over a decade. Indeed, apropos of headlines, I'll see the Daily Mails cited above and raise it one of my own. And I quote, For some, doing business in China means leaving your conscience at the border. On August 1, 2005. End quote. That clearly speaks for itself. But perhaps no headline conveyed my frustration and dismay, quite like this one, over a decade later. Again I quote, Apple, if America were a police state, like China, we'd happily comply. On February 27, 2016. End quote. And uh, by the way, 
Given Apple's notorious history of taking orders from China, I did not intend to convey even a hint of irony. Indeed, to reinforce my point, I included an excerpt from a commentary I wrote a week earlier, titled, Apple Defends iPhones as Safe Haven for Terrorists to Plot, on February 22, 2016. That excerpt reads in part as follows. Apple's compliance with the Chinese government makes a mockery of its defiance against the American government, not least because this betrays the fact that Apple is all too willing to sacrifice customer privacy for corporate profit. And if you believe the Chinese government uses Apple to protect the privacy of its citizens, your naivete is matched only by Apple's hypocrisy. As it happens, though, Apple is merely doing what other tech companies, like Google, have done and are still doing. End quote. I should end there, but I have a related beef, so please bear with me. Because tech CEOs are not the only ones kowtowing to Chinese authorities. Perhaps you read the truly disheartening report Reuters ran on May 21, detailing how U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has been chasing after his Chinese counterpart for a bilateral meeting, like an ugly freshman chasing the captain of the varsity football team for a date. Naturally, it's tempting to suspect racism afoot in the Chinese snubbing this first black defense secretary. But that suspicion is mitigated, though not excluded, by the pioneering roles Colin Powell played as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and Secretary of State, the one Condi Rice played as Secretary of State, and, of course, the one Barack Obama played as President of the United States. Truth be told, I suspect the Chinese have no concerns about disrespecting the U.S. Defense Secretary like this because they have no fear of ever engaging in conventional, let alone nuclear, warfare with the mighty United States. This is why they see far more value in fraternizing with defense officials from Russia and North Korea because those officials can share strategies on asymmetrical cyber warfare that would enable China to emulate the way Russia-sanctioned hackers brought most of America to its knees a few weeks ago. This by using nothing more than their laptops to force Colonial Pipeline to cut off the supply of gasoline all along the East Coast until it paid them millions in ransomware. Meanwhile, these and other hackers are picking off hundreds of US government and corporate entities like sitting ducks every year with impunity. <laughs> so, instead of begging for meetings with Chinese military officials, perhaps Secretary Austin should be hunkering down with officials in his own department's Cyber Command devising strategies, not only to defend against these cyber-attacks, but also to launch counter-attacks 
to deter them. Hell, you'd be forgiven the impression that America itself is already recognizing China as the most powerful nation in the world, because only that explains Austin's extraordinary supplication. Except that former President Trump's public dalliances with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un so cheapened once coveted meetings with top U.S. officials that even North Korean officials are now ghosting them. In fact, I refer you to my most recent podcast episode, Biden's Foreign Policy A-Team is Failing Him, on May 15, to hear me venting and bemoaning, in equal measure, about reports on Kim ghosting Biden himself, the way this Chinese defense minister has been ghosting his defense secretary. <laughs> Frankly, America seems to be wallowing in the throes of an identity crisis, where no public official knows their value. <laughs> the problem, of course, is that having the President of the United States and his defense secretary begging so publicly for meetings with North Korea and China, respectively, gives the latter far too much credibility and respectability on the world stage. An instructive analogy might be to think of CNN and MSNBC dedicating 100 times more coverage to the lunatic rantings of QAnon queen Marjorie Taylor Greene than to the patriotic pleadings of Joan of Arc Liz Cheney. Because these same liberal networks feature anchors continually decrying the way Greene is dragging the Republican Party down a rabbit hole of dystopian self-immolation. Yet they seem blithely oblivious to the fact that they're the ones enabling her to drag the entire country down with them. <laughs> if you are interested in more on this raging battle for the soul of the Republican Party, which is really one for the soul of America, by proxy, I refer you to my blog commentary, Liz Cheney's Joan of Arc Reckoning in the GOP from May 13, 2021. In any event, Biden would do well to impose a moratorium on all heads of state meetings with China, Russia, and other rogue states. Instead, he should implement his Build Back Better agenda to make America stronger than ever, while strengthening all NATO alliances. Then, he should communicate with those perennial enemies the way the US communicated most effectively with the old Soviet Union, namely through military strength. As it happens, I addressed this unfolding dynamic with respect to calls to boycott the 2022 Beijing Olympics in the May 15 podcast episode on Biden's A-Team, which I cited earlier. But I am convinced that, 
Despite the cravenness and obsequiousness its leaders have been showing lately, America remains not only the most powerful, but the most indispensable nation in the world. More to the point, I cannot overstate that China is as dependent on manufacturing cheap stuff to sell in America as America is on buying cheap stuff that is manufactured in China. Incidentally, with respect to both China and Russia, militarily, I submit that the concept of mutual assured destruction, M-A-D, that rendered war between nuclear powers prohibitive during the Cold War, still obtains. Of course, apropos of MAD, you've probably noticed that Russian President Vladimir Putin has been acting like a madman on the world stage lately. In the process, he has reduced Russia to little more than a doping kleptocracy that specializes in cybercrimes and political assassinations. This is why any world leader who commands any respect holds Putin in utter contempt. But since he can't brag about doping his athletes, fleecing his people, hacking foreign entities, or ordering political hits, Putin is resorting to schoolyard taunts to get attention, and not to mention the role he's playing as de facto godfather to rogue leaders everywhere. For example, most leaders rushed to condemn Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko for hijacking a commercial airline on Sunday just to kidnap an opposition journalist. But Putin rushed not only to congratulate him for this daring do, but also to invite Lukashenko for a state visit this weekend to offer, in person, any help he might need to weather any sanctions those outraged world leaders impose. <laughs> no doubt they'll be chuckling away while doing shots of Stolichnaya. This, especially as they contrast all the brazen acts of lawlessness Lukashenko has committed to stay in power with the way pro-democracy protests forced wannabe strongman Viktor Yanukovych to hightail it and run from neighboring Ukraine. I commented on the rest of events that ended in Yanukovych seeking refuge in Russia in Ukraine's Orange Revolution Turns Red on February 25, 2014. Nobody has seen or heard from him since. Of course, nobody should be surprised that Putin applauded this brazen act of lawlessness like the proud mafia boss I often cast him as in commentaries. I refer most notably to, in Putin's Russia, even athletics is a criminal doping enterprise. On November 9, 2015. After all, Lukashenko clearly did this 
because Putin showed that rogue leaders like them can get away even with hacking America to its knees and murdering political opponents with ease. Indeed, it cannot be lost on Lukashenko that these same world leaders vented far greater outrage and imposed far more onerous sanctions for far worse transgressions against Putin. Yet, no less a world leader than US President Joseph R. Biden is practically salivating at the prospect of his forthcoming summit with Putin. So, is there any wonder autocrats, even tiny Samoas, feel emboldened? Frankly, you'd be forgiven the impression that early-stage dementia has Biden thinking Putin is the leader of the old Soviet Union. And to be sure, Putin fantasizes openly and notoriously about being the Tsar of a reconstructed union of all socialist republics that once composed that Soviet bloc. And I've been mocking him for years for doing so. In commentaries like, The Putinization of Russia extends to Georgia on November 2, 2005. The reality, of course, is closer to what the late Senator John McCain of Arizona used to say to get under his thin skin. Namely, that Putin is the leader of the largest gas station in the world, just masquerading as a country. This is why, on my blog just two days ago, I published to reinforce sanctions against Lukashenko the Skyjacker and Vlad the Poisoner, Biden must cancel the Putin summit. What is so humiliating, though, is that Putin is effectively taunting Biden to do so. Because only this explains that Russian schoolyard bully, threatening just last week, to knock out the teeth of any foreign nation that even attempts to lay claim to any part of the Arctic that he has already claimed for his mother Russia. But I've been arguing for years that US presidents should coordinate with Western allies to impose crippling sanctions not on states but directly on rogue leaders and their oligarch cronies. Further, that they should limit all contacts with these rogues to formal channels through diplomatic underlings. I refer you in this regard to commentaries like Why do world leaders even give North Korea's leader the time of day? On October 4, 2006 Pussy Riot Russia's Vlad the Poisoner strikes again on September 19, 2018. And Germany confirms what everyone knew. Putin poisoned Navalny on September 3, 2020. In other words, 
As I explained in the May 15 podcast episode I referenced earlier, Western leaders should not be giving autocrats like Putin and Kim Jong-un the time of day. But, I delineated in this same episode, the economically mad, as in the acronym for Mutual Assured Destruction, reasons why. Xi Jinping might appear the exception to this rule, but is in fact not. I warned in my Earth Day podcast episode on May 1 that Chinese nationalism is so insecure that China even bullies nations that invite the Dalai Lama to attend peace conferences featuring Nobel Peace Laureates. In a similar vein, it is bullying member nations at the UN today to exclude Taiwan from a World Health Forum. But I warned it would be thus, ever since I wrote, World Beware, China Calling in Loan Sharking Debts, on February 3, 2010, and the more ominous, China buying political dominion over the Caribbean, Latin America, and Africa on February 22, 2005. Woke Americans think they're all that because they can get this or that person who offends their sense and sensibilities cancelled. <laughs> but they clearly have nothing on woke Chinese who are forcing nations across the globe to comport with their sense and sensibilities out of fear of being cancelled. Hell, forget the American Defense Secretary, because we live in a world where American celebrities are continually making groveling, hostage-like apologies for unwittingly offending the Chinese, and this for such unthinkable offenses as tweeting support for pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong, having a movie scene that shows China in a bad light, or calling Taiwan a country, as movie star John Cena did this week and was promptly forced to apologize for doing so, in sycophantic Mandarin, no less. Uh, to be fair, unlike their government, American celebrities do not have the leverage of mutual assured destruction to exercise in their dealings with Chinese authorities. And so they prostrate themselves like this, because China's vindictiveness is such that no slight is too petty to escape the vengeful wrath of the state. Specifically, movie stars know their films would be dead on arrival in the lucrative Chinese market if they cause even a slight crack while walking on the eggshells that constitute respecting China's woke culture these days. And so I repeat, world beware, because this bullying only hints at what portends if China wields the kind of power and influence throughout the 21st century that America wielded throughout the 20th. Indeed, 
If you think Trump's control of the Republican Party reeks of Orwellian madness, stay tuned. That's it, and if you liked it, please subscribe. It's free. If you'd like to contact me, I invite you to email anthonyhall279 at gmail.com or use the contact feature on my blog at www.ipjn.com. Thank you for listening, and until the next Talking Opinions, goodbye.